0: Welcome to the Death Panel Halloween Special. (laughs) I'm your host for the evening, Vince, the dearly departed. Tonight we present to you Two Tales of Terror, as read by the Death Panel's own, Phil Rocco. Our first tale begins with a young academic who finds he may have bitten off more than he can chew. <laughs>
1: Black Mill by August Van Zorn. In the fall of 1948, when I arrived in Plunketsburg to begin the fieldwork I hoped would lead to a doctorate in archaeology, there were still a good number of townspeople living there whose memories stretched back to the time in the final decade of the previous century when the soot blackened hills that encircle the town fairly swarmed with savants and mad diggers. In 1892, the discovery, on a hilltop overlooking the Miscahannock River, of the burial complex of a hitherto unknown tribe of mound-builders, had set off a frenzy of excavation and scholarly poking around that made several careers, among them the aged hero of my profession, who was chairman of my dissertation committee. It was under his redoubtable influence that I had taken up the study of the awful Illustrious Miskahannicks, with their tombs and bone pits, a course that led me last one gray November afternoon to turn my overladen fourth-hand Nash off the highway from Pittsburgh to Morgantown, and to navigate tightly gripping the wheel the pitted ghost of a roadbed that winds up through the Youghiogheny Hills, then down into the broad and gloomy valley of the Miskahannick. As I negotiated that endless series of hairpin and blind curves, I was afforded an equally endless series of dispiriting partial views of the place where I would spend the next ten months of my life. Like many of its neighbors in that iron-veined country, Plunketsburg was at first glance unprepossessing, a low, rusting little city with tarnished onion domes and huddled houses, drab as an armful of dead leaves strewn along the ground but as I left the last hill behind me and got my first unobstructed look, I immediately noted one structure that, while it did nothing to elevate my opinion of my new home, altered the humdrum aspect of Plunketsburg sufficiently to make it remarkable, and also sinister. It stood off to the east of town, in a zone of weeds and rust-colored earth, a vast black box bristling with spiky chimneys extending over some five acres or more, dwarfing everything around it. This was, I knew at once, the famous Plunketsburg Mill. Evening was coming on, and in the half-light, its windows winked and flickered with inner fire, its towering stacks vomited smoke into the autumn twilight. I shuddered and then cried out, "'So intent had I been on the ghastly black apparition of the mill "'that I had nearly run my car off the road. "'Here in this mighty fortress of industry,' "'I quoted aloud in the tone of a newsreel narrator, "'reassuring myself with the ironic reverberation of my voice, "'turn the great cogs and thrust the relentless pistons "'that forge the pins and trusses of the American dream.' I was recalling the words of a Chamber of Commerce brochure I received last week from my hosts, the Antiquities Department of Plunketsburg College, along with particulars of my lodging and library privileges. They were anxious to have me. It had been many years since the publication of my Chairman's Miscahannock surveys had effectively settled all answerable questions, save, I hoped, one, about the vanished tribe and consigned Plunketsburg once again to the mists of academic oblivion and the thick black effluvia of its satanic mill. "'So what is there left to say about that pointy-toothed crowd?' said Carlotta Brown Jenkin, draining her glass of brandy. The chancellor of Plunketsburg College and chairwoman of the Antiquities Department had offered to stand me to dinner on my first night in town." We were sitting in the Hawaiian-style dining room of a Chinese restaurant downtown. Brown Jenkin was herself appropriately antique. A gaunt old girl in her late seventies, her nearly hairless scalp worn and yellowed, the glint of her eyes deep within their cavernous sockets, like that of ancient coins discovered by torchlight. "'I quite thought your distinguished mentor had revealed all their bloody mysteries.' Only the women filed their teeth, I reminded her, taking another swallow of Indian ring beer, the local brew, which I found to possess a dark, not entirely pleasant savor of autumn leaves or damp earth. I gazed around the low room with its air ersatz palm thatching and garlands of wax orchids, the only other people in the place were a man on wooden crutches with a pinned-up trouser leg and a man with a wooden hand, both of them drinking Indian Ring, and the bartender an extremely fat woman in a thematically correct but hideous red moo My hostess had assured me, without a great deal of enthusiasm, that we were about to eat the best-cooked meal in town. "'Yes, yes,' she recalled." Smiling tolerantly. Her particular field of study was great Carthage, and no doubt I thought she looked down on my unlettered band of savages. They considered pointed teeth to be the essence of female beauty. That is, of course, the theory of my distinguished mentor, I said, studying the label on my beer bottle on which there was printed Thelder's 1894 engraving of the Plunkettsburg Ring, which was also reproduced on the cover of Miscahannock's surveys. "'You do not concur?' said Brown Jenkin. "'I think there may in fact be other possibilities. "'Such as?' At this moment the waiter arrived, bearing a tray laden with plates of unidentifiable meats and vegetables that glistened in garish sauces the colors of women's lipstick. The steaming dishes emitted an overpowering blast of vinegar, as if to cover some underlying stench. Feeling ill, I averted my eyes from the food, and saw that the waiter, a thick-set, powerful man with bland Slavic features, was missing two of the fingers on his left hand. My stomach revolted. I excused myself from the table and ran directly to the bathroom. Nerves, I explained to Brown Jenkin when I returned, blushing to the table. I'm excited about starting my research. Of course, she said, examining me critically. With her napkin, she wiped a thin red dribble of sauce from her chin. I quite understand. There seemed to be an awful lot of missing limbs in this room, I said, trying to lighten my mood. I hope none of them end up in the food. The Chancellor stared at me, aghast. A very bad joke, I said. My apologies. My sense of humor was not, I'm afraid, widely admired back in Boston either. No, she agreed, with a small, unamused smile. Well... She patted the long, thin strands of yellow hair atop her head. It's the mill, of course. Of course, I said, feeling a bit dense for not having puzzled this out myself. Dangerous work they do there, I take it. The mill has taken a piece of half the men in Plunketsburg, Brown Jenkins said, sounding almost proud. Yes, it's terribly dangerous work. There had crept into her voice a boosterish tone of admiration that could not fail to remind me of the Chamber of Commerce brochure. Important work. Vitally important, I agreed, and to placate her I heaped my plate with colorful, luminous, indeterminate meat, a gesture for which I paid dearly through all the long night that followed. I took up residence in the Murrow House— just off the campus of plunketsburg college it was a large rambling structure filled with hidden passages queerly shaped rooms and staircases leading nowhere built by the notorious lady magnate the robber baroness philippa howard murrow founder of the college noted spiritualist and author and dark genius of the plunketsburg mill she had spent the last four decades of her life and a considerable part of her manufacturing fortune adding to demolishing and rebuilding her home. On her death, a resultant warren, a chimera of brooding Second Empire gables, peaked Victorian turrets and Baroque porticos with a coat of glossy black ivy passed into the hands of the private girls' college which she'd endowed, which had converted to a faculty club and lodgings for visiting scholars. I had a round turret room on the fourth and uppermost floor, There were no visiting scholars in the house, and, according to the porter, this had been the case for several years. Old Halachek, the porter, was a bent, slow-moving fellow who lived with his daughter and grandson in a suite of rooms somewhere in the unreachable lower regions of the house. He, too, had lost a part of his body to the great mill in his youth, his left ear. It had been reduced by a device that Halachek called a Dodson Line Extruder, to a small pink ridge nestled in the lee of his bushy white sideburns. His daughter, Mrs. Abonus, oversaw a small staff of two maids and a waiter and did most of the cooking for the dozen or so faculty members who took their lunches at Murrow House every day. The waiter was Halacek's grandson, Dexter Abonus, an earnest, good-looking, affable redhead of seventeen who was a favorite among the college faculty. He was intelligent, curious, widely, if erratically, read. He was always pestering me to take him to dig in the mounds, and while I would not have been averse to his pleasant company, the terms of my agreement with the board of the college, who were the trustees of the site, expressly forbade the recruiting of local workmen. Nevertheless, I gave him books on archaeology and kept him abreast of my discoveries such as they were several of the Plunkettsburg professors i learned had also taken an interest in the development of his mind they sent me up to pittsburgh last winter he told me one evening about a month into my sojourn as he brought me a bottle of ring and a plate of mrs bonus's famous kielbasa with sauerkraut professor brown jenkin had been much mistaken in my opinion about the best laid table in town During the most tedious, chilly, and profitless stretches of my scratchings about in the bleak, flinty Yuccaganes, I was often sustained solely by thoughts of Mrs. Abonis' homemade sausages and cakes. I had an interview with the dean of engineering at Tech. Professor Collier even paid for a hotel for Mother and me. And how did it go? Oh, it went fine, I guess, said Dexter i was accepted no oh, i said confused the autumn semester at carnegie tech i imagine, would have been ending that very week have you have you deferred your admission deferred it indefinitely i guess i told him no thanks dexter had in an excess of nervous energy been snapping a tea towel back and forth he stopped His normally bright eyes took on a glaze, I would almost have said, dreamy expression. I'm going to work in the mill. The mill? I said, incredulous. I looked at him to see if he was teasing me, but at that moment he seemed to be entertaining only the pleasantest imaginings of his labors in that fiery black castle. I had a sudden vision of his pleasant face rendered earless and looked away forgive my asking but why would you want to do that my father did it said dexter his voice dull his father too i'm on the hiring list the light came back into his eyes and he resumed snapping the towel soon as a place opens up i'm going in he left me and went back into the kitchen and i sat there shuddering I'm going in. The phrase had a heroic, doomed ring to it, like the pronouncement of a fireman about to enter his last burning house. Over the course of the previous month, I had ample opportunity to observe the mill and its effect on the male population of Plunketsburg. Casual observation in local markets and bars, in the lobby of the Orpheum on State Street, on the sidewalks, in Birch's General Store out on Gray Road, Where I stopped for coffee and cigarettes every morning on my way up to the mound complex, had led me to estimate that, in truth, fully half of the townsmen had lost some visible portion of their anatomies to Murrow manufacturing ink. And yet all my attempts to ascertain how often these horribly grave accidents had befallen their bent maimed or limping victims were met invariably with an explanation at once so detailed and so vague so rich in mechanical jargon yet so free of actual information that i had never yet succeeded in producing in my mind an adequate picture of the incident in question or for that matter of what kind of deadly labor was performed in the black mill what precisely was manufactured in that bastion of industrial democracy and fount of the Murrow millions? I heard the trains come sighing and moaning into town in the middle of the night, clanging as they were shunted into the mill sidings. I saw the black diesel trucks, emblazoned with the crimson initial M, lumbering through the streets of Plunkett'sburg on their way to and from the loading docks. I had two dozen conversations over endless mugs of Indian ring, about shift schedules and union activities invariably quashed, and company picnics, about ore and furnaces, metallurgy and turbines. I heard the resigned, good-natured explanations of men sliced open by Rawlings divigators, ground up by spline presses, mangled by steam sorters, half-decapitated by rolling hurley plates— and yet, after four months in Plunketsburg I was no closer to understanding the terrible work to which the people of that town sacrificed, with such apparent goodwill, the bodies of their men. I took to haunting the precincts of the mill in the early morning, as the six o'clock shift was coming on, and late at night as the graveyard men streamed through the iron gates carrying their black lunch pails. The fence, an elaborate Victorian confection of wickedly tipped thick iron pikes trailed with iron ivy enclosed the mill yard at such a distance from the mountainous factory itself that it was impossible for me to get near enough to see anything but the glow of huge fires through the begrimed mesh windows. I applied at the company offices in town for admission as a visitor to the plant, but was told by the receptionist, rather rudely, that the Plunkettsburg Mill was not a tourist facility my fascination with the place grew so intense and distracting that i neglected my work my wanderings through the abandoned pearlies of the savage miscanics grew desultory and ruminative my discoveries of artifacts never frequent dwindled to almost nothing and i made fewer and fewer entries in my journals finally one exhausted morning, after an entire night spent lying in my bed at Murrow House, staring out the leaded window at a sky that was bright orange with the reflected fire of the mill, I decided that I had had enough. I dressed quickly, in plain tan trousers and a flannel work shirt. I went down to the closet in the front hall, where I found a drab old woolen coat and a watch cap that I pulled down over my head. Then I stepped outside the terrible orange flashes had subsided and the sky was filled with stars i hurried across town to the east side to stan's diner on mill street where i knew i would find the day shift wolfing down ham and eggs and pancakes i slipped between two large men at the long counter and ordered coffee when one of my neighbors got up to go to the toilet i grabbed his lunch pail threw down a handful of coins and hurried over to the gates of the mill where i joined the crowd of men they looked at me oddly not recognizing me, and I could see them murmuring to one another in puzzlement. But the earliness of the morning, or an inherent reserve, kept them from saying anything. They figured, I suppose, that whoever I was, I was somebody else's problem. Only one man, tall, with thinning yellow hair, kept his gaze on me for more than a moment. His eyes, I was surprised to see, looked very sad. You shouldn't be here, buddy, he said, not unkindly. I felt myself go numb. I had been caught. what, oh oh no, I-the whistle blew the crowd of men swelled now to more than a hundred, jerked to life and waited, nervous on the balls of their feet for the gates to open. The man with the yellow hair seemed to forget me in the distance. An equally large crowd of men emerged from the belly of the mill and headed toward us. There was a grinding of old machinery, the creak of stressed iron and the ornamental gates rolled away. The next instant I was caught up in the tide of men streaming towards the mill, borne along like a cork. Halfway there, our group intersected with the graveyard shift, and in the ensuing chaos of bodies and hellos, I was sure my plan was going to work. I was going to see, at last, the inside of the mill. I felt something. Someone's fingers brushed the back of my neck, and then I was yanked backwards by the collar of my coat. I lost my footing and fell to the ground. As the changing shifts of workers flowed around me, I looked up and saw a huge man standing over me, his arms folded across his chest. He was wearing a black jacket emblazoned on the breast with a large M. I tried to stand, but he pushed me back down. You can just stay right here until the police come, he said. Listen, I said my research clearly was at an end my scholarly privileges would be revoked i would creep back to boston where of course my committee and above all my chair would recommend that i quit the department you don't have to do that once more i tried to stand and this time the company guard threw me back to the ground so hard and so quickly that i couldn't break my fall with my hands the back of my head slammed against the pavement. A passing worker stepped on my outstretched hand. I cried out. Hey, said a voice. Come on, Mo. You don't have to treat him that way. It was the sad-eyed man with the yellow hair. He interposed himself between me and my attacker. Don't do this, Ed, said the guard. I'll have to write you up. I rose shakily to my feet and started to stumble away back towards the gates come on professor said ed putting his arm around me you better get out of here do i know you i said leaning gratefully on him no but you know my nephew dexter he pointed you out to me at the movies one night thank you i said when we reached the gate he brushed some dirt from the back of my coat handed me a knit stocking cap and then took a black bandana from the pocket of his dungarees He touched a corner of it to my mouth and came away marked with a dark stain. Only a little blood, he said. You'll be all right. You just make sure to stay clear at his place from now on. He brought his face close to mine, filling my nostrils with the sharp medicinal tang of his aftershave. He lowered his voice to a whisper. And stay off the beer. What? Just stay off it. He stood up straight and returned the bandana to his back pocket. I haven't taken a sip in two weeks. I nodded, confused. I had been drinking two, three, sometimes four bottles of Indian Ring every night, finding that it carried me effortlessly into a profound and dreamless sleep. Just tell me one thing, I said. I can't say nothing else, Professor. It's just... what are you what do you do in there me he said pointing to his chest (laughs) i operate a sprue extruder yes yes i said but but what does a sprue extruder do what is it for he looked at me patiently but a little remotely a distracted parent with an inquisitive child it's for extruding sprues he said what else thus repulsed humiliated and given good reason to fear that my research was in imminent jeopardy being brought to an end i resolved to put the mystery of the mill out of my mind once and for all and get on with my real business in plunketsburg i went out to the site of the mound complex and worked with my brush and little hand spade all through the day until the light failed when I got home, exhausted, Mrs. Zabonis brought me a bottle of Indian ring, and I gratefully drained it before remembering Ed's strange warning. I handed the sweating bottle back to Mrs. Zabonis. She smiled. Can I bring you another, Professor? She said. No, thank you, I said. Her smile collapsed. She looked very disappointed. All right, she said. For some reason, the thought of disappointing her bothered me greatly, so I told her. Maybe one more. I retired early and dreamed dreams that were troubled by the scratching of iron on earth and by a clamoring tumult of men. The next morning I got up and went straight out to the site again. For it was going to take work, a lot of work, if my theory was ever going to bear fruit, During much of my first several months in Plunketsburg, I had been hampered by snow, and by the degree to which the site of the Plunketsburg Mounds, a broad plateau on the eastern slope of Mount Oort, on which there had been excavated in the 1890s 36 huge molars of packed earth, each the size of a two-story house, had been picked over and disturbed by that early generation of archaeologists. Their methods had not in every case been as fastidious as one could have hoped." There were numerous areas of old digging where the historical record had, through carelessness, been rendered illegible. Then again, I considered as I gazed up at the ivy-colored flank of the ancient artificial hillock my mentor had designated B-3, there was always the possibility that my theory was wrong. Like all productions of Academe, I suppose, my theory was composed of equal parts indebtedness and spite. I had formulated it in a kind of rebellion against that grand old man of the field, my chairman, the very person who had inculcated in me a respect for the deep, subtle savagery of the Miscahannock Indians. His view, the standard one, was that the culture of the builders of the Plunkettsburg Mounds at its zenith had expressed to a degree unequaled in the Western Hemisphere up to that time the aestheticizing of the nihilist impulse— They had evolved all of the elaborate social structures, texts, rituals, decorative arts, architecture of any of the world's great religions, dazzling feats of abstract design represented by thousands of baskets, jars, bowls, spears, tablets, knives, flails, axles, codices, robes, and so on, that were housed and displayed with such pride in the museum of my university back in Boston— but the so insofar as anyone had ever been able to determine and many had tried worship nothing or as my teacher would have it nothing in 1903 professor william waterman of yale discovered 14 separate ossuary pits along the banks of the river not far from the present site of the mill these contained enough bones to frame the bodies of seven thousand men and boys and nobody knew why they died The few tattered, fragmentary, blood-on-tan-bark texts so far discovered concerned themselves chiefly with the recurring famines that plagued Miscahannic civilization, and it was generally theorized, had been responsible for its ultimate collapse. The texts said nothing about the sacred arts of killing and torture. There was, my teacher had persuasively argued, one reason for this. The deaths had been purposeless. Their justification the cosmic purposelessness of life itself. Now, once I had settled myself on spiteful rebellion, as every good pupil eventually must, there were two possible paths available to me. The first would have been to attempt to prove beyond a doubt that the Miscahanics had, in fact, worshipped some kind of god, some positive, purposive entity, however bloodthirsty. I chose the second path— I accepted the godlessness of the Miscahannics. I rejected the refined, reasoning nihilism my mentor had postulated, and to which, as I among very few others knew, he himself privately subscribed. The Miscahannics, I hoped to prove, had had another reason for their killing. They were hungry. And, according to the tattered scraps of the Plunketsburg Codex, very hungry indeed." The filed teeth my professor subsumed to the larger aesthetic principles he elucidated had, in my view, a far simpler and more utilitarian purpose. Unfortunately, the widespread incidence of cannibalism among the women of a people vanished 4,000 years since was proving rather difficult to establish. So far, in fact, I had found no evidence of it at all. I knelt to untie the canvas tarp I had stretched across my digging of the previous day. I was endeavoring to take an inclined section of B-3, cutting a passage five feet high and two feet wide at a thirty-degree angle to the horizontal. This endeavor in itself was a kind of admission of defeat, since B-3 was one of two mounds, the other being its neighbor B-5, designated a null mound by those who had studied the site. It had been thoroughly pierced and penetrated and found to be utterly empty, reserved. It was felt for the mortal remains of a dynasty that had failed. But I had already made careful searches of the thirty-four other tombs of the miscanic Queens. The null mounds were the only ones remaining. If, as I anticipated, I found no evidence of anthropophagy, I would have to give up on the mounds entirely and start looking elsewhere. There are persistent stories of other bone pits in the pleats and hollows of the Yaga Perhaps I could find one, a fresh one, one not trampled and corrupted by the primitive methods of my professional forebears. I peeled back a sheet of oiled canvas I had spread across my handiwork and received a shock. The passage, which over the course of the previous day I had managed to extend a full four feet into the side of the mound, had been completely filled in. Not merely filled in, the thick black soil had been tamped down and a makeshift screen of ivy had been drawn across it. I took a step back and looked around the site, certain all at once that I was being observed. There were only the crows and the treetops. In the distance, I could hear the murrow trucks on the torturous highway grinding gears as they climbed up out of the valley. I looked down at the ground by my feet and saw the faint imprint of a foot smaller than my own. A few feet from this, I found another. That was all. I ought to have been afraid, I suppose, or at least concerned, but at this point, I confess, I was only angry. The site was heavily fenced and posted with no trespassing signs, but apparently some local hoodlums had come up that night and wasted all the previous day's hard work. The motive for this vandalism eluded me, but I suppose that a lack of any discernible motive was in the nature of vandalism itself i picked up my hand shovel and started in again on the doorway to the mound the fifth bite i took with a little iron tooth brought out something strange it was a black bandana twisted and soiled i spread it out across my thigh and found the small round trace of my own blood on one corner i was bewildered and again i looked around to see if someone was watching me There were only the laughter and ragged fingers of the crows. What was that up to? Why would my rescuer want to come up onto the mountain and ruin my work? Did he think he was protecting me? I shrugged, stuffed the bandana into a pocket, and went back to my careful digging. I worked steadily throughout the day, extending the tunnel six inches nearer than I had come yesterday to the heart of the mound, then drove home to Murrow House, my shoulders aching, my fingers stiff. I had a long, hot soak in the big bathtub down the hall from my room, smoked a pipe, and read, for the fifteenth time at least, the section in Miscahannock's surveys dealing with B3. Then at 6.30 I went downstairs to find Dexter Bonus waiting to serve my dinner, his expression blank, his eyes bloodshot. I remember being surprised that he didn't immediately demand details from my day in the dig. He just nodded, retreated into the kitchen and returned with a heated can of soup, half a loaf of white bread, and a bottle of ring. Naturally, after my hard day, I was disappointed by this fare, and I inquired as to the whereabouts of Mrs. Abonis. She had some family business, Professor, Dexter said, rolling up his hands in his tea towel and then unrolling them again. Sad business. Did somebody die? My Uncle Ed, said the boy collapsing in a chair beside me and covering his twisted features with his hands he had an accident down at the mill i guess fell headfirst into the impact mold what i said feeling my throat constrict my god dexter something has to be done that mill ought to be shut down dexter took a step back startled by my vehemence I thought at once, of course, the black bandana, and now I wondered if I was not somehow responsible for Etta Bonus's death. Perhaps the incident in the mill yard the day before, his late night digging in the dirt of B3 as some kind of misguided effort to help me, left him rattled, unable to concentrate on his work, prayed accidents. You just don't understand, said Dexter. It's our way of life here. There not anything for us but the mill he pushed the bottle of indian ring toward me drink your beer professor i reached for the glass brought it to my lips but was swept by a sudden wave of revulsion like that which had overtaken me at the chinese restaurant on my first night in town i pushed back from the table and stood up my violent start upsetting a pewter candelabra in which four tapers burned Dexter lunged to keep it from falling over, then looked at me, surprised. I stared back, chest heaving, feeling defiant, without being sure of what exactly I was defying. I'm not going to touch another drop of that beer, I said, the words sounding petulant and absurd as they emerged from my mouth. Dexter nodded. He looked worried. All right, Professor, he said, obligingly, as if he thought I might have become unbalanced, you just go on up in your room and lie down. Huh? I'll bring you your food a little later. How about that? The next day, I lay in bed, aching, sore, and suffering from that peculiar brand of spiritual depression born largely of suppressed fear. On the following morning, I roused myself, shaved, dressed in my best clothes, and went to the Church of St. Stephen on Nolt Street in the heart of Plunketsburg's Estonian neighborhood. The funeral of Edibonus. There was a sizable turnout, as was always the case, I was told, when there had been a death in the mill. Such deaths were reportedly uncommon. The mill was a cruel and dangerous, but rarely fatal place. At Dexter's invitation, I went to the dead man's house to pay my respects to the widow, and two hours later I found myself, along with most of the other male mourners, roaring drunk on some kind of fruit brandy brought out on special occasions. It may have been the brandy burned away the jitters and anxiety the past two days. In any case, the next morning I went out to the mounds again, with a tent and a cook stove and a bag of groceries. I didn't leave for the next five days. My hole had been filled in again, and this time there was no clue as to the identity of the filler, but I was determined not to let this spook me as the saying goes. I simply dug ordinarily i would have proceeded cautiously carrying the dirt out by thimblefuls and sifting each one but i felt my time on the site growing short i often saw cars on the access road by day and headlight beams by night slowing down as if to observe me twice a day a couple of sheriff's deputies would pull up to the ring and sit in their car watching at first whenever they appeared i stopped working lit a cigarette and waited for them to arrest me But, when after the first few times nothing of the sort occurred, I relaxed a little and kept on with my digging for the duration of their visit. I was resigned to being prevented from completing my research, but before this happened, I wanted to get to the heart of B3. On the fourth day, when I was halfway up to my goal, George Birch drove out from his general store as I had requested with cans of stew, bottles of soda pop, and cigarettes. He was normally a dour man, but on this morning his face seemed longer than ever. I inquired if there was anything bothering him. Carlotta Brown Jenkin died last night, he said. Friend of my mother's. Tough old lady, he shook his head. Influenza. Shame. I remember that awful, technicolored meal so many months before. The steely glint of her eyes in their cavernous sockets I did my best to look properly sympathetic. That is a shame, I said. He set down the box of food and looked past me to the entrance of my tunnel. "You Sure you know what you're doing, he said. I assured him that I did, but he continued to look skeptical. I remember the last time you archaeologist fellas came to town, you know, he said. As a matter of fact, I did know this since he told me almost every time I saw him i was a boy we had just got electricity our house things must have changed a great deal since then i said things haven't changed at all he snapped he was never a cheerful man george birch he turned hitching up his trousers and limped on his wooden foot back to the truck that night i lay in my bedroll under the canvas roof of my tent watching the tormented sky The lantern hissed softly beside my head. I kept it burning low all night long, advertising my presence to any who might seek to come and undo my work. It had been a warm, spring-like afternoon, but now a cool breeze was blowing in from the north, stirring the branches of the trees over my head. After a while, I drowsed a little. I fancied I could hear the distant fluting of the Miscahannock flowing over its rocky bed, and still more distant the low insistent drumming of the machine heart in the black mill suddenly i sat up the music i had been hearing of the breeze and river and far off machinery seemed at once very close and not at all metaphoric i scrambled out of my bedroll in tent and stood taut listening at the edge of plunkett's burg ring it was music i heard strange music, and it seemed to be issuing impossibly from the other end of the tunnel I had been digging and redigging for the past two weeks from within Mound B3, the Null Mound. I have never generally been plagued by bouts of great courage, but I do suffer from another vice whose outward appearance is often indistinguishable from that of bravery. I am pathologically curious." I was not brave enough in that eldritch moment actually to approach B3 to investigate the source of the music I was hearing, but though every primitive impulse urged me to flee, I stood there listening until the music stopped an hour before dawn. I heard sorrow in the music, and mourning, and the beating of many small drums, and then in the full light of the last day of April emboldened by bright sunshine and a cup of instant coffee i made my way gingerly to the mound i picked up my shovel lowered my foolish head into the tunnel and crept carefully into the bowels of the now silent mound seven hours later i felt the shovel strike something hard like stone or brick then the hardness gave way and the shovel flew abruptly out of my hands i had reached at last the heart of mound b3 and it was not empty. Oh, no, not at all. There were seven sealed tombs lining the dome walls, carved stone chambers of the usual miscahannic type, and another ten that were empty, and one as yet unsealed that held the unmistakable, though withered, yellow, naked, and eternally slumbering form of Carlotta Brown Jenkin, and crouched on her motionless chest, as though prepared to devour her throat, sat a tiny stone idol, hideous, black, brandishing a set of wicked ivory fangs. Now I gave in to those primitive impulses. I panicked. I tore out of the burial chamber as quickly as I could and ran for my car, not bothering to collect my gear. In twenty minutes I was back at the Moreau house. I hurried up the front steps, intending only to go to my room, retrieve my clothes and books and papers, and leave behind Plunketsburg forever but when i came to the foyer i found dexter carrying a tray of eaten lunches back from the dining room to the kitchen he was whistling lightheartedly and when he saw me he grinned then his expression changed what is it he said reaching out to me has something happened nothing i said stepping around him avoiding his grasp The streets of Plunketsburg had been built on evil ground, and now I could only assume that every one of its citizens, even cheerful Dexter, had been altered by the years and centuries of habitation. Everything's fine. I just have to leave town. I started up the wide-carpeted steps as quickly as I could, mentally packing my bags and boxes with essentials, loading the car and twisting and backtracking up the steep road out of this cursed valley. My name came up. Dexter said. I start tomorrow at the mill. Why did I turn? Why did I not keep going down the long, crooked hallway and carry out my sensible, cowardly plan? You can't do that, I said. He started to smile. But there must have been something in my face. The smile fizzled out. You'll be killed. You'll be mangled. That good-looking mug of yours will be hideously deformed... "'Maybe,' he said, trying to sound calm. "'But I could see that my own agitation was infecting him. "'Maybe not. "'It's the women. "'The queens. "'They're alive.' "'The queens are alive? "'What are you talking about, Professor? "'I think you've been out on the mountain too long.' "'I have to go, Dexter. "'I'm sorry. "'I can't stay here anymore. "'But if you have any sense at all, you'll come with me. "'I'll drive you to Pittsburgh.' You can start at Tech. They'll help you. They'll give you a job. I could feel myself starting to babble. Dexter shook his head. Can't, he said. My name came up. Shoot, I've been waiting for this my whole life. Look, I said, all right, just come with me out to the ring. I looked at my watch. We've got an hour until dark. Just let me show you something I found out there. And then if you still want to go work in that infernal factory, I'll shake your hand and bid you farewell. You'll really take me to the site? I nodded. He set the tray on a deal table and untied his apron. Let me get my jacket, he said. I packed my things and we drove in silence to the necropolis. I was filled with regret for this course of action, with intimations of disaster, but I felt I couldn't simply leave town and let Dexter Abonis walk willingly into that fiery irritation of the evil genius, the immemorial accursedness of his drab Pennsylvania hometown. I couldn't leave the young, unmarked body to be broken, split on the horrid machines of the mill. As for why Dexter wasn't talking, I don't know. Perhaps he sensed my mounting despair, or perhaps he was simply lost in youthful speculation on the unknown vistas that lay before him subterranean sights, forbidden and half legendary to him since he had first come to consciousness of the world as we turned off gray road onto the access road that led up to the site he sat up straight and looked at me his face grave with consummate adolescent pleasure of violating rules there i said i pointed out the window as we crested the rise the plunketsburg ring lay spread out before us filled with jagged shadows in the slanting, rust-red light of the setting sun. From this angle the dual circular plan of the site was not apparent, and the thirty-six mounds appeared to stretch from one end of the plateau to the other, like a line of uneven teeth studding an immense, devouring jawbone. "'Let's make this quick,' I said, shuddering. I handed him a spare lantern from the trunk of the Nash,' and then we walked to the edge of the aboriginal forest that ran upslope from the plateau to the wind-shattered precincts of Mount Orgert's sharp peak. It was here, in the lee of a large maple tree, that I had set up my makeshift camp. At the time, the shelter of that homely tree had seemed quite inviting, but now it appeared to me that the forest was the source of all the lean shadows reaching their ravening fingers across the plateau. I ducked quickly into my tent to retrieve my lantern and then hurried back to rejoin Dexter. I thought he was looking a little uneasy now. His gait slowed as we approached B3. When we trudged around to confront the raw earthen mouth of the passage I had dug, he came to a complete stop. We're not going inside there, he said in a monotone. I saw come into his eyes the dull, dreamy look that was there whenever he talked about going to work in the mill. It isn't allowed. It's just for a minute, Dexter. That's all you'll need. I put my hands on his shoulders and gave him a push, and we stumbled through the dank, close passage, the light from our lanterns veering wildly around us. Then we were in the crypt. No, Dexter said. The effect on him, of the sight, of the time-ravaged naked body of Carlotta Brown Jenkin, of the empty tombs, the hideous idol, the outlandish ideograms that covered the walls, was everything I could have hoped for. His jaw dropped, his hands clenched and unclenched. He took a step backward. She just died. Yesterday, I agreed. "'trying to allay my own anxiety "'with a show of ironic detachment. "'But what... "'what's she doing out here?' "'He shook his head quickly, "'as though trying to clear it of smoke or spider webs. "'Don't you know?' I asked him, "'for I was still not completely certain "'of his or any townsman's uninvolvement in the evil, "'at once ancient and machine age, "'that was evidently the chief business of Plunketsburg. "'No!' "'God, no!' he pointed to the queer, fanged idol that crouched with a hungry leer on the late Chancellor's hollow bosom. "'God, what is that thing?' I went over to the tomb, and, cautiously, as if the figure with its enormous, obscene tusks might come to life and rip off a mouthful of my hand, picked up the idol. It was as black and cold as space, and so heavy that it bent my hand back at the wrist.' as I hefted it. With both hands, I got a firm grip on it and turned it over. On its pedestal were incised three symbols in the spiky, complex script of the Miscahanics, unrelated to any other known human language or alphabet. As with all of the tribe's inscriptions, the characters had both a phonetic and a symbolic sense. Often, these were quite independent of one another. yug i read sounding it out carefully yogog what does that mean it doesn't mean anything as far as i know but it can be read another way it's trickier here's tooth gut that's hunger and this one i held up the idol to him he shied away his face had gone completely pale and there was a look of fear in his eyes, of awareness of evil that I found, God forgive me, strangely gratifying. This is a kind of general intensive, I believe, making this read loosely rendered hunger itself. How odd. Yagog, Dexter said softly, a thin strand of spittle joining his lips. Here. I said, cruelly, tossing the heavy thing toward him. Let him go into the black mill now, I thought, after he's seen this. Dexter batted at the thing, knocking it to the ground. There was a sharp, tearing sound like matchwood splitting. For an instant, Dexter looked utterly, cosmically startled. Then he and the idol of Yugog disappeared. There was a loud thud and a clatter, and I heard him groan. I picked up the splintered halves of the carved wooden trapdoor Dexter had fallen through and gazed down into a fairly deep, smooth-sided hole. He lay crumpled at the bottom, about eight feet beneath me, in the light of his overturned lantern. "My God, I'm sorry, are you all right?" "I think I sprained my ankle," he said. He sat up and raised his lantern. His eyes got very wide. "'Professor, you have to see this!' I lowered myself carefully into the hole and stared with Dexter into a great round tunnel, taller than either of us, paved with crazed human bones, stretching far beyond the pale of our lanterns. "'A tunnel,' he said. "'I wonder where it goes.' "'I can only guess,' I said, and that's never good enough for me. "'Professor, you aren't—' But I had already started into the tunnel— a decision that I attributed not to courage, of course, but to my far greater vice. I did not see that as I took those first steps into the tunnel that I was in fact being bitten off, chewed, and swallowed, as it were, by the very mouth of the Plunkettsburg evil. I took small, queasy steps along the horrible floor, avoiding, in so far as I could, stepping on the outranged means of human skulls searching the smooth, plastered walls of the tunnel for ideograms or other hints of the builders of this amazing structure. The tunnel, or at least this version of it, was well built, buttressed regularly by sturdy iron piers and lintels and of chillingly recent vintage. Only great wealth, I thought, could have managed such a feat of engineering. A few minutes later I heard a tread behind me, and saw the faint glow of a lantern. Dexter joined me, favoring his right ankle, his lantern swinging as he walked. We're headed northwest, I said. We must be under the river by now. Under the river? He said. Could Indians have built a tunnel like this? No, Dexter. They could not. He didn't say anything for a moment, as he took this information in. Professor, we're... We're headed for the mill, aren't we? I'm afraid we must be, I said. We walked for three quarters of an hour until the sound of pounding machinery became audible, grew gradually unbearable, and finally exploded directly over our heads. The tunnel had run out. I looked up at the trap door above us. Then I heard a muffled scream. To this day, I don't know if the screamer was one of the men up on the floor of the factory or Dexter Ebonus, a massive hand clapped brutally over his mouth because the next instant at the back of my head a supernova bloomed and flared brightly. I wake in an immense room to the idiot pounding of a machine. The walls are sheets of fire flowing upward like inverted cataracts. The ceiling is lost in shadow from which, when the flames flare brightly, there emerges the vague impression of a steely web of girders among which dark things ceaselessly creep. Thick coils of rope bind my arms to my sides, and my legs are lashed to the ankles, to those of the plain pine chair in which I have been propped. It is one of two dozen chairs, in a row that is one of a hundred, in a room filled with men, the slumped crew cut, big shouldered ordinary men of Plunketsburg, and its neighboring towns. We are all waiting and watching, as the women of Plunketsburg, the servants of Yagog, pass noiselessly among us in their soft, horrible cloaks, stitched from the hides of dead men, tapping on the shoulder of now one fellow, now another. None of my neighbors, however, appears to have required the use of strong rope to conjoin him to his fate. Without a word, the designated men, their blood, thick with the dark earthen brew of their ring witches, rise and follow the skins of miscreant fathers and grandfathers down to the ceremonial altar at the heart of the mill, where the priestesses of Yagog throw oracular bones and, given the result, take hold of the man's ear, his foot, his fingers. A yellow snake, its venom presumably anesthetic, Is applied to the faded extremity then the long knife is brought to bear and the vast immemorial hunger of the god of the Miscahanics is assuaged for another brief instant in the past three hours on this Walpurgis night nine men have been so treated tomorrow people in this bewitched town that in a reasonable age has learned to eat its men a little at a time will speak I am sure of a series of horrible accidents at the mill. The women came to take Dexter Abonis an hour ago. I looked away as he went under the knife, but I believe he lost the better part of his left arm to the god. I can only assume that very soon now I will feel the tap on my left shoulder of the fingers of the town librarian, the grocer's wife, of Mrs. Abonis herself. I am guiltier by far of trespass than Edibonus, and do not suppose I will survive the procedure. Strange how calm I feel in the face of all of this. Perhaps there remain traces of the beer in my veins, or perhaps in this hellish place there are other enchantments at work. In any case, I will at least have the satisfaction of seeing my theory confirmed, or partly confirmed before I die, and the concomitant satisfaction so integral to my profession of seeing my teacher's theory cast into the dustbin. For, as I held, the Miscahannock's hungered, and hunger, black, primordial, unstanchable hunger itself was their god. It was indeed the misguided scrambling and digging of my teacher and his colleagues, I imagine, that awakened the great Yugog from its 4,000-year slumber. As for the black mill that fascinated me for so many months, it is a sham. The single great machine to my left takes in no raw materials and emits no ingots or sheets. It is simply an immense piston endlessly screaming and pounding like the skin of an immense drum, the ground that since the days of the Miscahanics had been the sacred precinct of the god. The flames that flash through the windows and the smoke that proceeds from the chimneys are bits of trickery, mechanical contrivances devised, I suppose, by Philippa Howard Murrow herself, in the days when the revived spirit of Yugog first whispered to her of its awful eternal appetite for the flesh of men. The sole industry of Plunketsburg is carnage, scarred and mangled bodies the only product. One thought disturbs the perfect poison calm with which I am suffused, the trucks that grind their way in and out of the valley, the freight trains that come clanging in the night. What cargo, I wonder, is unloaded every morning at the docks of the Plunkettsburg Mill. What burden do those trains bear away?
0: Ooh, that was spooky, wasn't it? I guess that's what you get for settler colonialism. Mmm, yummy. But I know what you're thinking. Perhaps you prefer your horrors a little more... close to home? Our last tale for the evening could scratch that itch. We begin in a city not unlike your own. Where the townspeople are about to find out, there has been... A change of management.
1: the town manager by Thomas legati one gray morning not long before the onset of winter some troubling news swiftly traveled among us the town manager was not in his office and seemed nowhere to be found we allowed this situation or apparent situation to remain tentative for as long as we could this was simply how we had handled such developments in the past it was Carnes the man who operated the trolley which ran up and down Main Street who initially recognized the possibility that the town manager was no longer with us he was the first one who noticed as he was walking from his house at one end of town to the trolley station at the other end that the dim lamp which had always remained switched on inside the town manager's office was now off. Of course, it was not beyond all credibility that the light bulb in the lamp that stood in the corner of the town manager's desk had simply burned out, or that there had been a short circuit in the electrical system of the small office on Main Street. There might even have been a more extensive power failure that also affected the rooms above the office the town manager resided since he had first arrived among us to assume his duties certainly we all knew the town manager as someone who was in no way vigilant regarding the state of either his public office or his private living quarters consequently those of us in the crowd that had gathered outside the town manager's office and his home considered both the theory of an expired light bulb and that of an electrical short circuit at some length yet All the while, our agitation only increased. Carnes was the one whose anxiety over this matter was the most severe, for the present state of affairs had afflicted him longer than anyone else, if only by a few minutes. As I have already indicated, this was not the first time that we had been faced with such a development. So when Carnes finally called for action, the rest of us soon abandoned our refuge in the theoretical. It's time to do something, said the trolley driver. We have to know. Ritter, who ran the local hardware store, jimmied open the door to the town manager's office, and several of us were soon searching around inside. The place was fairly neat, if only by virtue of being practically unfurnished. There was simply a chair, a desk, and the lamp on top of the desk. The rest of it was just empty floor space and bare walls. Even the drawers of the desk, as some of the more curious members of our search party discovered, were all empty. Ritter was checking the wall socket into which the lamp's cord was plugged, and someone else was inspecting the fuse box at the back of the office. But these were merely stall tactics. No one wanted to reach under the lampshade and click the switch to find out whether the bulb had merely burned out or, more ominously, the place had been given over to darkness by design. The latter action, as all of us were aware, signaled that the tenure of any given town manager was no longer in effect. At one time, our nexus of public services and functions was a traditional town hall, rising up at the south end of Main Street, rather than a small lamp clinging to the edge of a time-worn desk. That impressive structure was outfitted with a great chandelier. This dazzling fixture served as a beacon, assuring us that the town's chief official was still with us. When the town hall fell into decay and finally had to be abandoned, Other buildings gave out their illumination, from the upper floors of the old opera house, also vacated in the course of time, to the present storefront office that had more recently served as the center of the town's civic administration. But there always came a day when, without notice to anyone in the town, the light went out. "'He's not upstairs!' Carnes yelled down to us from the town manager's private rooms. At that precise moment, I had taken it upon myself to try the light switch. The bulb lit up, and everyone in the room went mute. After a time, somebody, to this day I cannot recall who it was, stated in a resigned voice, He's left us. Those were the words that passed through the crowd outside the town manager's office until everyone knew the truth. No one even speculated that this development might have been caused by mischief or a mistake. The only conclusion was that the old town manager was no longer in control and that a new appointment would be made, if in fact this had not already been done. Nonetheless, we still had to go through the motions. Throughout the rest of that gray morning and afternoon, a search was conducted. Over the course of my life, these searches were performed with increasingly greater speed and efficiency whenever one town manager turned up missing as the prelude to the installation of another. The buildings and houses comprising our town were now far fewer than in my childhood and youth. Whole sections that had once been districts of a prolific activity had been transformed by a remarkable corrosion into empty lots only a few bricks and some broken glass indicated that anything besides weeds and desiccated earth had ever existed there. During my years of youthful ambition, I had determined that one day I would have a house in a grand neighborhood known as The Hill. This area was still known as such, a designation bitterly retained, even though the real estate in question, now a rough and empty stretch of ground, no longer rose to a higher elevation than the land surrounding it. After satisfying ourselves that the town manager was nowhere to be found within the town, we moved out to the countryside. Just as we were going through the motions when we searched inside the town limits, we continued going through the motions as we tramped through the landscape beyond them. As previously stated, the time of year was close to the onset of winter, and there were only a few bare trees to obstruct our view in any direction as we wandered over the hardening earth. We kept our eyes open, but we could not pretend to be meticulous searchers. In the past, no town manager had ever been found, either alive or dead, once he had gone missing and the light in his office had been turned off. Our only concern was to act in such a way that would allow us to report to the new town manager, when he appeared, that we had made an effort to discover the whereabouts of his predecessor. Yet this ritual seemed to matter less and less to each successive town manager, the most recent of whom barely acknowledged our attempts to locate the dead or living body of the previous administrator. "'What?' he said after he finally emerged from dozing behind the desk in his office. "'We did the best we could,' repeated one of us who had led the search, which on that occasion had taken place in early spring. "'Storm the entire time,' said another. After hearing our report, the town manager merely replied, "Uh, "'Oh, I I see. Yes, well, well done,' then he dismissed us and returned to his nap why do we even bother said lehman the barber when we were outside the town manager's office we never find anything i referred him and the others to the section of the town charter a brief document to be sure that required a fair search of the town and its environs whenever a town manager went missing This was part of an arrangement that had been made by the founders and had been upheld throughout succeeding generations. Unfortunately, nothing in the records that had come to be stored in the new opera house and were subsequently lost to the same fire that destroyed this shoddily constructed building years before had ever overtly stated with whom this arrangement had been made. The town charter itself was now only a few poorly phrased notes assembled from recollections and lore, although the specifics of this rudimentary document were seldom disputed. At the time, no doubt, the Founders had taken what seemed the best course for the survival and prosperity of the town, and they forged an arrangement that committed their descendants to the same course. There was nothing extraordinary about such actions and agreements. But that was years ago! said Lehman on that rainy spring afternoon. I for one think it's time to find out just who we're dealing with. Others agreed with him. I myself did not disagree. Nonetheless, we never did manage to broach the subject with the old town manager. But as we walked across the countryside on that day so close to the onset of winter, we talked among ourselves and vowed that we would pose certain questions to the new town manager, who usually arrived not long after the disappearance or abdication of the previous administrator, sometimes on the very same day. The first matter we wished to take up was the reason we were required to conduct a futile search for missing town managers. Some of us believed that these searches were merely a way of distracting us so that the new town manager could take office before anyone had a chance to observe by what means he arrived, or from what direction he came. Others were of the opinion that these expeditions did in fact serve some purpose, although what that may have been was beyond our understanding. Either way, we were all agreed that it was time for the town, that is, what was left of it, to enter a new and more enlightened era in its history. However, by the time we reached the ruined farmhouse, all our resolutions dissolved into the grayness in which that day had been enveloped. Traditionally, the ruined farmhouse, along with a wooden shed that stood nearby, marked the point at which we ended our search and returned to town. It was now close to sundown, which would give us just enough time to be back in our homes before dark once we had made a perfunctory inspection of the farmhouse and its shed. But we never made it that far. This time, we kept our distance from that farmhouse, which was no more than a jagged and tilting outline against the gray sky, as well as from the shed, a narrow structure of thin wooden planks that somewhat hammered together a long time ago. There was something written across these weathered boards. Markings that none of us had ever seen before. They were scored into the wood, as if with a sharp blade. Some of the letters were either missing or unreadable in the places where they were gouged into planks that separated from one another. Carnes, the trolley man, was standing at my side. Does, does that say what I th- think it says?' he said to me, almost in a whisper. "'I think so.' "'And the light inside?' "'Like smoldering embers,' I said, "'concerning the reddish glow that was shining through the wooden slats of the shed. "'Having recognized the arrival of the new town manager from whatever direction, "'and by whatever means he may have come, we all turned away and walked silently toward town, pacing slowly through the gray countryside that day by day was being seized by the coming winter. Despite what we had come across during our search, we soon reconciled ourselves to it, or, at least, we had reached a point where we no longer openly expressed our anxiety did it really matter if rather than occupying a building on main street with a sign that read town manager over the door the one who now held this position chose to occupy a shed whose rotting wooden planks had roughly the same words inscribed upon them with a sharp blade things had always been moving in that direction at one time the town manager conducted business from a suite of offices in the town hall and lived in a fine house in the hill district of town. Now this official would be working out of a weather-beaten shed next to a ruined farmhouse. Nothing remained the same for very long. Change was the very essence of our lives. My own situation was typical. As previously mentioned, I had ambitions of owning a residence in the hill district. For a time... I operated a delivery business that almost certainly would have led to my attaining of this goal. However, by the time the old town manager arrived, I was sweeping the floors at Lehman's shop and taking whatever odd jobs came along. In any case, my drive to build up a successful delivery business was all but extinguished once the Hill District had eroded away to nothing. Perhaps the general decline in the conditions of the town as well as the circumstances of its residence, could be attributed to poor officiating on the part of our town managers, who, in many ways, seemed to be less and less able in their duties as one succeeded another over the years. Whatever apprehensions we had about the new town manager, it could not be said that the old town manager had been a model administrator. For some time before his term came to an end, he had spent the whole of each working day asleep, Behind his desk on the other hand every town manager could be credited with introducing some element of change some official project of one kind or another it was difficult to condemn as wholly detrimental even if the new opera house had never been anything but a shoddily constructed fire trap bit nonetheless represented an effort at civic rehabilitation or at least gave this impression for his part The old manager had been responsible for the trolley which ran up and down Main Street. In the early days of his administration, he had brought in workers from outside the town to construct this monument to his spirit of innovation. Not that there had ever been a great outcry for such a conveyance in our town, which could be easily traversed from one end to the other either on foot or by bicycle. Nevertheless, once the trolley had been built, most of us rode the thing at one time or another, if only for the novelty of it. Some people, for whatever reason, made regular use of this new means of transportation and even seemed to depend on it to carry them the distance of only a few blocks. If nothing else, the trolley provided Carnes with regular employment, which he had not formerly enjoyed. In brief, we had always managed to adapt to the ways of each town manager who had been sent to us. The difficult part was waiting for the new administrators to reveal the nature of their plans for the town, and then adjusting ourselves to whatever form they might take. This was the system in which we had functioned for generations. This was the order of things into which we had been born, and to which we had committed ourselves by compliance. The risk of opposing this order, of plunging into the unknown, was simply too much for us to contemplate for very long. But... We did not foresee, despite having witnessed the spectacle of the shed behind the ruined farmhouse, that the town was about to enter a radically new epoch in its history. The first directive from the new town manager was communicated to us by a torn piece of paper that came skipping down the sidewalk of Main Street one day and was picked up by an old woman who showed it to the rest of us. The paper was made from a pulpy stock and was brownish in color. The writing on the paper looked as if it had been made with charred wood and resembled the same hand that had written those words across the old boards of the town manager's shed. The message was this. Destroy Trolley. While the literal sense of these words was apparent enough we were reluctant to act upon a demand that was so obscure in its point and purpose. It was not unprecedented for a new town manager to obliterate some structure or symbol that marked the administration of the one who had come before him, so that the way might be cleared for him to erect a defining structure or symbol of his own, or simply efface any prominent sign of the previous order and thereby display the presence of a new one but usually some reason was offered, some excuse was made for taking this action. This obviously was not the case with the town manager's instruction to destroy the trolley. So we decided to do nothing until we received some enhancement regarding this matter. Ritter suggested we might consider composing a note of our own to request further instructions. This note could be left outside the door of the town manager's shed. Not surprisingly, there were no volunteers for this mission, and until we received a more detailed notice, the trolley would remain intact. The following morning, the trolley came tooting down Main Street for its first run of the day. However, it made no stops for those waiting along the sidewalk. Look at this! "'Lehman said to me as he stared out the front window of his barber shop. "'Then he went inside. "'I set my broom against a wall and joined him. "'Others were already standing on the street, "'watching the trolley until it finally came to rest at the other end of town. "'There was no one at the switch!' said Lehman, "'an observation that a number of persons echoed. "'When it seemed that the trolley was not going to make a return trip,' Several of us walked down the street to investigate. When we entered the vehicle, we found the naked body of Carnes, the trolley driver, lying on the floor. He had been severely mutilated and was dead. Burned into his chest were the words, Destroy trolley. We spent the next few days doing exactly that. We also pulled up the tracks that ran the length of town and tore down the electrical system that had powered the trolley. Just as we were completing these labors, someone spotted another piece of that torn brownish paper. It was being pushed about by the wind in the sky above us, jerking about like a kite. Eventually it descended into our midst. Standing in a circle around the piece of paper, we read the scrawled words of the message. Good, it said. Next, your jobs will change. Not only did our jobs change, but so did the entire face of the town. Once again, workmen came from outside with orders to perform various kinds of construction, demolition, and decoration that began along Main Street and ultimately extended into the outlying neighborhoods. We had been instructed by the usual means not to interfere with them. Throughout the deep gray winter, they worked on the interiors of the town's buildings. With the coming of spring, they finished off the exteriors and were gone. What they left behind them was a place that did not resemble a town as much as it did a carnival funhouse, and those of us who lived there functioned as sideshow freaks. Once we had been notified by the usual method, of exactly how our jobs had changed. For example, Ritter's hardware had been emptied of its traditional merchandise and restructured as an elaborate maze of lavatories. Upon entering the front door, you immediately found yourself standing between a toilet and a sink. Built into one of the walls of this small room was another door that opened upon another lavatory that was somewhat larger in dimensions. This room had two doors that led to further lavatories some of which could be reached only by ascending a spiral staircase or walking down a long, narrow corridor. Each lavatory differed somewhat in size and decor. None of the lavatories was functional. The exterior of Ritter's Hardware was given a new façade, constructed of large stone blocks, and a pair of fake towers standing on either side of the building and rising some distance above it. A sign above the front door designated the former hardware store Comfort Castle. Ritter's new job was to sit in a chair on the sidewalk outside his former place of business, wearing a simple uniform with the word attendant displayed in sewn lettering below the left shoulder. Lehman, the barber, was even less fortunate in the new career that had been assigned to him. His shop, renamed Baby Town, had been refurbished into a giant playpen, amid stuffed animals and array of toys— Lehman was required to languish in infants' clothing sized for an adult. All of the businesses along Main Street had been transformed in some manner, although their tone was not always as whimsical as Reader's Comfort Castle or Lehman's Baby Town. A number of the buildings appeared simply as abandoned storefronts until one explored the interior and discovered that the back room was actually a miniature movie theater where foreign cartoons were projected upon a bare wall or that hidden in the basement was an art gallery filled entirely with paintings and sketches of questionable taste. Sometimes these abandoned storefronts were precisely what they appeared to be, except you would find yourself locked inside once the door had closed, forcing you to exit out the back. Behind the stores of Main Street was a world of alleys, where it was perpetually night, an effect created by tunnel-like arcades enclosing this vast area. Dim lamps were strategically placed so that no stretch of alley was entirely in darkness as you wandered between high wooden fences or brick walls. Many of the alleys ended up in someone's kitchen or living room, allowing an escape back into the town. Some of them kept growing more and more narrow until no further progress was possible and every step leading to this point needed to be retracted. Other alleys gradually altered as one walked along their length, eventually presenting a complete change of scene from that of a small town to one of a big city where screams and sirens could be heard in the distance, although these sounds were only recordings piped in through hidden speakers. It was in just such a vicinity where painted theatrical backdrops of tall tenement buildings with zigzagging fire escapes rose up on every side, that I worked at my own new job at the terminus of an obscure alley where steam was pumped through the holes of a false sewer grating, I had been stationed in a kiosk where I sold soup and paper cups to be more accurate. It was not actually soup. I was given to sell, but something more like bouillon. behind the counter that fronted my kiosk. There was a thin mattress on the floor where I could sleep at night or whenever I felt like sleeping, since it seemed unlikely that any customers would venture through that labyrinth of alleys so that I might serve them. I subsisted on my own bouillon and the water I used to concoct this desolate repast. It seemed to me that the new town manager would finally succeed in the task which his predecessors had but lazily pursued over the years, that of thoroughly bleeding the town with the few resources that had been left to it could not have been more wrong in this assessment. Within a matter of weeks, I had a steady stream of customers lined up outside my bouillon concession, who were willing to pay an outrageous price for my watery yellowish liquid. These were not my fellow citizens but people from outside. I noticed that nearly all of them carried folded brochures which either extruded from their pockets or were grasped in their hands. One of these was left behind on the counter that fronted my kiosk, and I read it as soon as the business slowed down. The cover of the brochure bore the words, Have a fun time in funny town. Inside were several captioned photographs of the various attractions that our town had to offer the curious tourist. I was in awe of the town manager's scheme. Not only had this faceless person taken our last penny to finance Most extensive construction project the town had ever seen, from which there was no doubt a considerable amount of kickback involved, but this ingenious boondoggle had additionally brought an unprecedented flood of revenue into our town. Yet the only one who truly prospered was the town manager. Daily, sometimes hourly, collections were made at each of the town's attractions and concessions. These were carried out by solemn faced strangers who were visibly armed with an array of weapons. In addition, I noticed that spies had been integrated among the tourists, just to ensure that none of us withheld more than a meager allotment of the profits that derived from the new town's enterprises. Nonetheless, where we had once had reason to expect nothing less than total impoverishment under the governance of the town manager, it now appeared that we would at least survive. One day, however... The crowds of tourists began to thin out. In short order, the town's new business dwindled to nothing. The solemn-faced men no longer bothered to make their collections, and we began to fear the worst. Hesitantly, we started to emerge from our places and gathered together on Main Street under a sagging banner that read, Welcome to Funny Town. I think that's it said ritter who was still wearing his bathroom attendant's uniform only one way to be sure said lehman now back in adult clothes once again we tramped out to the countryside under a gray sky some weeks before the onset of winter it was approaching dusk and long before we reached the town manager's shed we could see that no reddish light glowed inside nevertheless we searched the shed Then we searched the farmhouse. There was no town manager. There was no money. There was nothing. When the rest of them turned away and began to head back to town, I stayed behind. Another town manager would arrive before long, and I did not wish to see what form the new administration would take. This was the way it had always been. One town manager succeeding another, each of them exhibiting signs of greater degeneracy as if they were festering away into who knows what. And there was no telling where it would all end. How many others would come and go, taking with them more and more of the place where I had been born and was beginning to grow old. I thought about how different that place had been when I was a child. I thought about my youthful dream of having a home in the Hill District. I thought about my old delivery business. "'Then I walked in the opposite direction from the town. "'I walked until I came to a road. "'I walked down that road until I came to another town. "'I passed through many towns, "'as well as large cities doing clean-up work "'and odd jobs to keep myself going. "'All of them were managed according to the same principles "'as my old hometown, "'although I came upon none that had reached "'such an advanced stage of degeneracy. "'I had fled that place.' in hopes of finding another that had been founded on different principles and operated under a different order. But there was no such place, or none that I could find. It seemed the only course of action left to me was to make an end of it. Not long after realizing the aforementioned facts of my existence, I was sitting in the counter of a crummy little coffee shop. It was late at night, and I was eating soup. The coffee shop may have been in a small town, or a large city. Now that I think of it, the place stood beneath a highway overpass, so it must have been the latter. The only other customer in the place was a well-dressed man sitting at the other end of the counter. He was drinking a cup of coffee, and I noticed, directing a sidelong glance at me every so often. I turned my head toward him and gave him a protracted stare. He smiled and asked if he can join me at my end of the counter. You can do whatever you like. I'm leaving. Not just yet, he said as he sat down at the counterstool next to mine. What business are you in? None in particular. Why? I don't know. You just seem like someone who knows his way around. You've been some places, am I right? I suppose so, I said. I thought as much. Look, I'm not interested in chit-chat here. I work on commission, finding people like you. And I think you've got what it takes. For what? I asked. Town management, he replied. I finished off the last few spoonfuls of soup. I wiped my mouth with a paper napkin. Tell me more, I said. It was either that, or make an end of it.
0: What a twist! I hope that you've enjoyed this year's Death Panel Halloween. I know I certainly did. I guess it's back to the crypt for me then. But before I go, do support the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever and stay alive another week if you dare <laughs>